welcome to a new episode of On Translation. This is your host, Dr. Muhammad Al-Bakri. I'm doing this episode solo on the intriguing phenomenon of translationese. Translationese is a term that is most often, but not always, used negatively or even dismissively as a descriptor of a particular kind of style that you find in translated texts. So what does it really mean? Well, it refers to awkwardness, stylistic inelegance, turns of phrase and expressions that are semantically odd, unidiomatic, or even sometimes grammatically incorrect. Such expressions and phrases are presumably more present in certain translated texts, more than non-translated texts, due mostly to overtly literal translation. It's a kind of style that, that lends a certain aura of foreignness or otherness to the text. So original non-translated texts read mostly like they were written by a native speaker. They have this feel of being natural and fluent in their style. Some translated texts, on the other hand, may lack this quality and end up and end up with something which is probably grammatically correct, but phrased in a way that might feel a bit odd or unnatural. It's not a new term, translationese. It's been around for more than 100 years. According to the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest evidence for this term dates back to 1914 in the Classical Review, a journal dedicated to classical scholarship of ancient Greece, Rome, and Asia Minor. It's not always clear what constitutes or causes translationese, it's also not clear what the linguistic and stylistic patterns that lend themselves to translationese. But there have been many attempts to come up with a certain framework to come up with categories or types. So let's get into some of the frameworks. As I mentioned, uh, there are quite a few, but I'm going to talk about a couple. Neither of the frameworks that I will discuss here is particularly satisfactory, but at least it's a start. I'm going to start with a three-pronged framework of linguistic features proposed by Gertrude Cham. According to her, translationese can be broken into three broad groups. One, howlers. Two, interferences. And three, failure in overlap. Okay, so the howler is probably the most obvious one, and it's the most humorous one. It's a term that refers to glaring mistakes and blunders, especially amusing and unintentionally funny ones. This is most often due to someone's lack of proficiency in the language or misunderstanding or not grasping the subtleties of the target language they are translating to. Word choice issues, collocations, uh, unintended meaning and subtle connotations and so on. I was reading a, a text translated from Arabic into English, and it was referencing someone's being an accomplice to someone else in making a movie. What they probably meant was a partner, not an accomplice. And I can see that the two in Arabic refer to the notion of partnership, working together. But of course, accomplice in English is very different. It has this, you know, connotation of being nefarious, an accomplice in crime or something. Well, I have other examples here. Most of them come from the tourism literature or instruction manuals. Some of them might be apocryphal, but they are still very, very telling and uh, good examples of what is meant by howlers. This is at the front desk of a hotel. Please leave your values at the front desk. 
not valuables, values. Here is uh, another one on a multi-purpose knife. Blade extremely sharp, keep out of children, not out of the reach of children. On a box for toothbrush, you encounter this interesting instruction. It gives you strong mouth and refreshing wind. Here is a sign in a taxi cab. Please fasten your seatbelt to prepare for crash, not in case of crash. A job ad in the Japan Times expressing the notion that there's no discrimination uh, on the basis of gender. But instead of saying no discrimination on the basis of gender, it says no limit on sex. I assume there was a lot of applications for the job. <laughs> Finally, uh, an advertisement for a Hong Kong dentist. Teeth are extracted by the latest Methodists. Not methods, obviously, you know that Methodism or Methodists are, are a denomination of Protestant Christianity. All of these examples are funny, humorous, unintentionally, and they all relate to word meaning, subtle differences in words, certain structures, and so on. So that's the howlers. This is the most uh, prototypical examples of what we think of as translationese, the kind of translation that misfires, if you will. All right, we move on now to the second category, interferences. Uh, essentially, traces of the source language becoming apparent when you are translating into the target language. Again, due to word usage or syntax, syntactic structures. Of course, the first category, the howlers, there is also interference, but here it's a little bit more subtle. In Spanish, for example, uh, the verb intoxicar, unlike intoxicate, has a broader meaning meaning drugged, intoxicated, poisoned, so it's not equivalent to intoxicated. Intoxicated in English means drunk, but intoxicado could mean that a person has ingested something toxic or otherwise. This is a, a famous or rather infamous example of mistranslation. Someone almost died because of that misunderstanding. Staying on Spanish, caliente means hot, angry, mad, horny, turned on. So when you say estoy caliente, to mean I, I feel hot, it could mean turned on or mad. So it can cause a misunderstanding, an embarrassing misunderstanding. The third category is essentially failure of congruence related to cultural concepts, the notion of untranslatability. Certain cultural concepts are unique and specific to the culture, and they don't have a one-to-one -one equivalent in English. So elements specific to the source culture that, because of the lack of one-word equivalence, need to be paraphrased, explained using parentheses or footnotes, or ignored altogether. Not a good option, of course. Okay, moving on. The second framework by Angana Bora divides translationese into five types. Source interference, normalization, implicitation, explicitation, and simplification. Very briefly, source interference is what happens when translation replicates the typical patterns of the source language. In other words, the source language shines through the translation because of the slavish word-for-word -word translation or following the patterns of the original language. Normalization occurs when a translator tries to fit the original sentence from the source language 
to match the pattern of the target language, but it might feel a little bit forced. So to use a metaphor here, it's kind of like shoehorning the sentence. A shoehorn, of, of course, is a piece of metal or plastic that you put in the back of your shoe in order to push your, your heel inside. So normalization is forced translation, but it's also very similar to source interference. After that, we have the three processes of implicitation, explicitation, and simplification. Implicitation is not very, very common in translation. Essentially, it occurs when the translated text is more implicit than the corresponding source text. What is more common, however, is explicitation. Translation tends to expand on the original text. As a matter of fact, on average, translated text could be about 25% longer than the original. It's a tendency to over-explain. And that, of course, can be good in some cases, but it also can close ambiguous spaces that are rich in terms of giving multiple meanings. And finally, we have simplification. This is when the translator simplifies the original. For example, when you are reading a novel and sometimes there are no quotation marks, you don't know who's saying what, a translator can add quotation marks and make it clear who is saying what. A translation can replace personal pronouns, he or she, by specific names in order to specify who is talking and, and simplify the meaning for the reader. So that's this framework is a little bit more elaborate than the previous one, but it's also, it leaves something to be desired. I'm not sure that all these processes necessarily leave linguistic traces that can mark a given style as translationese. One thing I would like to talk about is the rich research in the area uh, of translationese in terms of reception and identification, as well as machine learning and machine translation evaluation. There are many studies that looked at the identification of translationese based on comparable corpora or collection of texts and, and the use of machine learning techniques for categorizing these texts. Uh, in other words, studies try to teach machines to recognize and accurately determine translated texts as opposed to non-translated texts. And there are numerous analytical studies that claim that there are distinguishing features. And these features actually are not big ones. It's not what you, you think. There are uh, adverbials, so the use of adverbs, like fortunately, regrettably, and so on. But also features such as personal pronouns, uh, he, she, we, they, function words, prepositions, articles like the, it, and so on. It is said that According to a few of the studies in, in digital humanities and literary and linguistic computing, that machine learning algorithms can outperform human beings in a text classification task regarding uh, translation. They yield results well above the average performance of human subjects, including professional translators, on differentiating between translated text and untranslated text. One of the studies that actually looked into uh, human subjects was published in the journal Target by the title Translationese, a myth or an empirical fact. And the idea was to identify linguistic features shared by texts assumed to be translations, as well as other texts that are originally produced. And the results were really intriguing. 
translations were not readily identifiable by human subjects. And the main thing they really latch on is whether there are specific cultural terms, rightly or wrongly. So unique, specific terms that feel like they are imported or transcribed from uh, another language. Okay, the positive or at least neutral use of the term translation is. And I encountered that in an article published in the Paris Review, June 2020, by the Japanese writer Masatsugo Uno. I hope I'm saying his name right. He speaks about his first encounter with the novels of the famous Japanese writers Haruki Marakomi, one of the big names in the global uh, literary market, of course. So Masatsugu says, and I quote, I couldn't say how exactly, but I immediately felt that his style was different from other contemporary Japanese writers I had read. He goes on to explain how Marakumi's supposedly neutral style is a type of Japanese as far removed as possible from the so-called literary language of Japanese. The style of uh, Marakumi was deemed by some critics as translationese, and in fact some critics attribute Marakumi's success in the global market to his non-Japaneseness or to the non-Japaneseness of his style, since it strays from a highly elaborate style that is considered literary in the Japanese tradition and, and kind of feels very close to the Japanese language used in translation of Western novels. Marakumi himself actually acknowledges that. In uh, one of his books, The Novelist as a Vocation, he says that he developed his own original writing, his, his own writing style, little by little, specifically by reading foreign novels, either in translation or in the original. This immersion in, in, in foreign literature played a crucial role in his literary development. He is always, in this sense, writing through the experience of the foreign. So we can say that Marakomi's style is made for translation, since it was made in translation. All right, so here are my concluding thoughts about this notion of translation ease. It is not a term that I like very much. I think it's a vague term and kind of amorphous and highly impressionistic. It's coined, of course, using the same suffix ease, as in journalese, legalese, medicalese, and so on. But unlike these recognizable registers of language or types of language, like newspaper language, legal language, medical language, I don't think that there is a particularly identifiable language for translation. Using simplification or explicitation processes is not really unique or specific to the language of translation. As I already mentioned, the term is often, is often a coded reference to convey a sense of stylistic strangeness if we apply the norms of the receiving language. This stylistic strangeness could be unintentional due to interferences from the source language, or quite frankly, because of a lack of linguistic and cultural competence on the part of the translator. But then again, stylistic strangeness or otherness could be intentional, an intentional act on the part of the translator, who may strive to quote-unquote normalize certain proverbs or, or idioms that are unique to the source language. The purpose, of course, could be to reinvigorate the receiving language or achieve a deliberate colonizing effect. This effect, of course, can be created by imitating the grammatical structures of the original text or by importing or plugging in words of foreign origin or by calcing them or reinterpreting them in such a way as to create puns 
or provide a new slant to a known expression or saying. My final thought, the term translationese is a loaded term, and it should be used sparingly and carefully if we even need to use it at all. On that note, I end this episode. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time.